0: Howdy listeners, this is Sarah Fowler with the Wild Waterfowl Podcast. I'm recording at the Green Antler. Not like last time when I was in Whistler, but I'm rehearsing for my All Candidates Forum, which is tonight. So I'm going to start off by reading what I've got so far. To all to start off my opening remarks, I want to thank the residents of Tassis for the opportunity to sit at the council table for the last 4 years. I have really learned a lot about our community, the region which surrounds us and how to better advocate provincially and federally for the village of Tassis. It has a huge personal it has been a huge personal honor for me to provide support as deputy mayor and to serve as alternate to Mayor Davis at the regional district. I've enjoyed chairing the TASSIS Age-Friendly Accessibility Committee meetings as we take accounts and make plans for the future together with our neighbors. There is of course challenges we need to overcome. The first and by far the most daunting is the infrastructure deficit. Many of the water and sewer lines under our streets are at the end of their useful life as they say in asset management webinars. During my time on Council, we have had our fire hall be officially condemned as the cracks in the walls and foundation grow. We on Council have spent many hours, days, weeks, and months looking for cost effective solutions to this and other problems. What many seem to be confused about is the long term borrowing needed to rehome the Tassus Volunteer Fire Department equipment and crew. If we continue to not meet the minimum requirements as set out by the Provincial Fire Commissioner, we will find ourselves in the position our neighbours in Sabalas do, suspending the fire service. I am sure you can imagine how that will impact our own personal finances as home insurance will no doubt increase and future residents will have added costs when trying to secure a mortgage. During the 12 years I have lived in Tassus in nearly every neighborhood, I have been witness to a handful of structure fires as well as wildland interfaces near the farm and at kilometer 17 on the road out of town. To start off, my opening remarks, I want to thank the residents of Tassas for the opportunity to sit at the council table for the last four years. I have really learned a lot about our community, the region which surrounds us, and how to better advocate provincially and federally for the village of Tassus. It has been a huge personal honour for me to provide support as deputy mayor and to serve as alternate to Mayor Davis at the regional district. I have enjoyed chairing the TASA's Age Friendly Accessibility Committee meetings as we take accounts and make plans for the future together with our neighbors. There is, of course, challenges we need to overcome. The first and by far the most daunting is the infrastructure deficit. Many of the water and sewer lines under our streets are at the end of their useful life, as they say in asset management webinars. During my time on council, we have had our fire hall be officially condemned as the cracks in the walls and foundation grow. We, on council, have spent money, have spent many hours, days, weeks, and months looking for cost-effective solutions to this and other problems. What many seem to be confused about is the long-term borrowing needed to rehome the TASA's volunteer fire department equipment and crew. If we continue to not meet the minimum requirements as set out by the Provincial Fire Commissioner, we will find ourselves in the position our neighbours in Ceballos do, suspending the fire service. I'm sure you can imagine how that will impact our own personal finances as home insurance will no doubt increase and future residents will have added costs when trying to secure a mortgage, not to mention safety issues as buildings here are built close. During the 12 years I have lived in Tassas, in nearly every neighbourhood, I have been witness to a handful of structure fires as well as wildland interface near the farm and at kilometre 17 on the road out of town. It gives me great solace to know we have people ready to respond to dispatch calls who practice and mobilize as needed. I I remember when the United Church was aflame and many got involved in an effort to prevent the fire from spreading up Cardiac Climb. A memory now, but required pre- preparation and investment over for over ten years. The fire hall has needed critical infrastructure repairs. During my time on council, we have made this a priority by taking steps to remedy these types of problems. We are expecting a return on investment that includes community well-being. The chain of office is a long-standing commitment to the democratic process and citizen engagement. Over the last four years, we have updated our official community plan, which sets the tone and direction for the staff work flow. In closing, I think it's worthwhile to mention, as I did at our last regularly scheduled council meeting, to which no one had any public input that according to my research, I am the only person elected to TASA's council who has been involved on the Union of British Columbia Municipalities Executive. I am poised to continue in the small community representative position for my third year if re-elected locally. I think this opportunity is important not just for me, but the entire region as our mm-hmm. connections to Yuquat, the Mawichit Muchilak capital, and Gold River are historical. Plus, I'm inspired by the new EV charger they got there. By being at the table and offering a candid truth about rural and remote realities, since the beginning of the term when the fire department expenses were not eligible grant options, to that reversal after Mayor Dennis, Dugas's, Mayor Dennis Dugas of Port Hardy's letter was co-signed by many island towns and villages in similar positions. A change in the provincial government offerings to include emergency and protective services has allowed us to benefit from the envelope's new requirements. This is done by advocating for this to be included as essential for these services, for these expenses, hmm, for the, for the, uh, maybe. Anyways, where am I now? I, for one, have been glad we are able to be a part of it. My only hope is to continue working to the best of my ability on economic development, safety, and renewal. Gratitude to everyone who was involved in organizing this forum, my fellow candidates, and the laundry list of amazing volunteers who give so freely of themselves to make improvements and contributions to this village. I am Sarah Fowler, and I stand to be re-elected to TASA's Council for 2022. Please vote October 5th or 15th. Merci, thank you, Gleckos. To start off my opening remarks, I want to thank the residents of Tassas for the opportunity to sit on the council tables for the last four years. It's been a steep learning curve as our community and surrounding area region offers a complex and deep habitat. I consider it a personal honour for me to provide support as Deputy Mayor and to serve as Alternate to Mayor Davis at the Regional District. Among the things I greatly enjoy is having conversations with the TASS's Age Friendly Accessibility Committee members as we make plans for the future together with our neighbours. There is, of course, challenges we need to address or overcome. The first and by far the most daunting is the infrastructure deficit. Many of the water and sewer lines under our streets are at the end of their useful life, as they say in asset management webinars. During my time on council, I have attended any I was invited to, from cyber risk to reports from insurance, law, and public hearing procedures. I have also funded my own trips to the mainland on three occasions to participate in Dakota Literacy Conference in Richmond, as well as Vancouver Globe Series and Climate Leaders Institute at UBC at which I won a prize from the Community Energy Association. However, we have also had our fire hall officially condemned by the building inspector as the cracks in the ceiling walls and foundation grow. We as a council have spent days, weeks, and months looking for cost-effective solutions to this and other problems. What some seem to be confused about is the long-term borrowing needed to rehome the TASIS volunteer fire department equipment and crew. If we continue to not meet the minimum requirements as set out by the Provincial Fire Commissioner, we will find ourselves in the position our neighbours in Ceballos do. By suspending the fire service, I am sure you can imagine how that will affect and impact each and every one of our own personal finances as home insurance will no doubt increase and future residents will have added costs when trying to secure a mortgage. Not to mention the glaring safety issues as buildings here are in quite close quarters to one another. During the 12 years I have lived in Tassus and nearly in nearly every neighborhood, I might add, I have been witness to a handful of structure fires as well as wildland interfaces near the farm and kilometer 17 on the road out of town. It gives me great solace to know we have people ready to respond to dispatch calls at all hours, who practice and mobilize as needed. I remember when the United Church was aflame and many got involved in the effort to prevent the flames from spreading up cardiac climb. A memory now, but then required preparation, investment, and action. For over 10 years, the fire hall was in need of critical repairs. During my time on Council, we have made it a priority. By taking steps to remedy these problems, we expect a return on investment that includes well-being and resilience. The chain of office is a long-standing commitment to the democratic process and citizen engagement. Over the last four years, we have updated our official community plan, which sets the tone and direction decided by residents determining staff work plans. In closing, I think it's worthwhile to mention, as I did at our last regularly scheduled meeting of council to which there was no public input, that according to my research, I am the only person elected the only person elected to TASS Council who has been involved on the UBCM executive. I am poised to continue in the small community representative position for my third year if re-elected locally. I think this is an important opportunity, not just for me, but for the entire region of Nuka Sound. Tassus means the path, and we are connected by water to Yuquat, the capital of the at muchelot Territory, to Gold River historically by land, as I am inspired by their new EV charger outside the info center on the highway. By being at the table and offering a candid truth about rural and remote realities, at the start of this term, Fire Department expenses were not eligible options for provincial grants. After Mayor Dugas' co-signed letter, that had, has been reversed. I, for one, am glad we're able to be a part of advocating to upper tiers of government to allow us to benefit with capital and operational lifts for protective and emergency services in many places. My only hope is to continue working to the best of my ability on economic development, safety and renewal. My gratitude to Martin, Linda, Bill, and Cheryl, and everyone who was involved in organizing this forum. I appreciate my fellow candidates and the list of amazing volunteers who give so freely of themselves to make improvements and contributions to this village. My name is Sarah Fowler. I am standing for re-election to TASA's Council 2022 to 2026. Please vote on October 5th or 15th. Kleckos, merci, and thank you.
1: those in the neighborhood and those who visit the neighborhood so i'm pretty passionate about this because it's just so powerful and so you know like i said it's this integration of place and people um, that fits into the larger framework of your city or regional economic economic development efforts um we're block by block we're working on strategy um, and What's really interesting here is mobilizing around, um, yes, a place, but really around issues of shared concern. Those might be things very aspirational and dreamy that people want to accomplish in their neighborhood, or they could be pain points like blight or economic issues that can be um, pinpointed to certain areas, but why it's different than traditional uh, economic development is that we're really leaning into the grassroots piece of this work so that we can have the neighborhood as a partner driving this meaningful change. So who's typically involved? Uh, It can be everything from residents, to businesses, to property owners. Uh, Those are typically the people involved, let alone those technical experts that can provide technical assistance but we really want to hone in on who's driving this residents businesses and property owners so successful neighborhood development Uh, again we're looking at things that are a little different than just traditional economic development it's all about aiming at sustainable change and that's done by building coalitions Strengthening relationships across many interests and again that grassroots So if we have coalitions and strong relationships that Coalesce from bottom-up grassroots, that's how we're gonna find sustainable change So it's a little different than just coming in and doing a piece of work and then hoping it stays nice or hoping that that, that the investment the change we're really trying to build partnerships of stakeholders that can then take it to the next level or keep the neighborhood nice or bring people to the table that otherwise would not use the convert to just doing something it's really about that bottom-up grassroots approach um, and so it may take a little different form but can be immensely rewarding and immensely meaningful to the people in the neighborhood and even have that ripple effect going forward um, across community across city across the region hopefully the province too right so we're aiming for sustainable change so the first step in this and there's a lot more in the manual but the first step is to really look at how you're defining a neighborhood and there's many ways to define a neighborhood could be defined by physical boundaries. Those things um, definitely um, could be of a natural setting, like there's a river, or there's an ocean, or you have a mountain. Maybe there's a major highway. Um, I know I've been in a lot of communities where a major highway splits Um, a community, and that is a distinctive piece of a physical boundary it could be the railroad tracks you know again think of physical things that mark that neighborhood there could be actually designated boundaries um, these could be like planning districts maybe you have a healthcare planning district or zoning where you're differentiating residential from um, industrial as an example um, this could be a full planned community whereas the developer has gone in and planned holistically boundaries where they're investing in infrastructure as such defining a sense of place and how that development occurs what that design looks like it could also be along the lines of school districts um, when you think about what you're trying to aim for in that particular school district another way is to look at business related boundaries and those kinds of boundaries um, they can be more defined or concentrated by zoning uh, but often and I think we're going to hear an example around that is like what's your central business district what's your financial district if you're a more urban area Maybe it's as simple as this is our three blocks of Main Street in rural downtown where we have businesses on both sides and we're honing in very specifically on that Main Street um, as an entrance point, as a, as a meeting point in our town. It could be uh, when you look at business boundaries, it could also be retail centers, maybe malls or plazas or just neighborhood retail within a residential market or a residential boundary as well. Um, The other way to look at these business boundaries is through centers of major employment. This could be the industrial area like an industrial park that's very demarcated um, and that is defined specifically. But we still have more ways to define a neighborhood socioeconomic boundaries could be based on housing values, on income levels. One that's very interesting and can be transformative when you dig deeper into this is psychological boundaries. You know, think about abandoned areas that need redevelopment, maybe it's downtrodden, but even more psychological. Think about those areas where people talk about your community, like, oh, they're on the other side of the railroad tracks, or they're south of XYZ Street. And so that can really um, take down the um, dreams and possibilities that people may have for that area of town um, that's losing investment, losing residents, losing businesses.
2: And finally, the other way
1: to define a neighborhood is around clusters of activity um and this could be an overlay of an arts district where you have artisan facilities or or lofts and things within maybe a downtown area or something like that perhaps an entertainment district where there are associated businesses around a sports uh, venue or uh, theater or other types of cl- uh, coalescing entertainment uh, areas. Um, That could even be as simple as a park that has entertainment um, pop-ups over time. Other clusters of activity might include a specific tourism feature. You know, you think about, I live in the States, so Washington, D.C. has a lot of historical monuments and places to visit, and within that, there are, there is a huge tourism draw for those particular features it could be about parks and outdoor space um, I was just in Oklahoma City for the IEDC the International Economic Development Council's annual conference and they have expanded different clusters of activity in their downtown to not just be about venues for conferences but expanding different kinds of park parks and Recreational outdoor space that is extending the activity in their downtown space. Could be concert centers, in, indoor, out, and different kinds of landmark buildings. So, not this isn't intended to be complicated, but lots of ways you can look at your neighborhoods as you start and initiate your strategy work in this area. There's really no universal definition for a neighborhood. It's about where you want to apply intentional effort um, and where there may be energy to do that. You may look across your data and say, wow, our businesses are not performing well um, in a certain boundary. Um, Why is that? And, And trying to unpack that a little bit further the other thing to keep in mind is that it, when you define your neighborhood it may be a combination of things it may be socioeconomic boundaries tagged with psychological boundaries etc um, etc cetera, et cetera. so um, the way is to just really make sure you have a clear description and know the area you're looking at that's helpful as you find data that's helpful as you bring people together. Where are we bringing people from so that they can have a stake in this strategy moving forward? And, you know, all in all, when I say that, it's really important to, you know, you may come to this as the economic developer. You're not living or working directly in that neighborhood and laying out some draft ideas about the, the neighborhood boundaries. Or, I mean, so so if you lay out the draft, you would want to do that with local neighborhood leaders. Does this mirror what you believe your neighborhood to be, be that business or residential neighbors, uh, uh, business or residential leaders in the neighborhood is what I'm trying to say. And the other way is to bring them together and say, how do you define it without even a draft? But that will help you again to um, mine data information and know who to involve in this grassroots strategy work. Okie dokie. Any questions with any of that? Okay. Well, let's go on to types. And again, I'm just trying to give a quick overview here. There's some real tangible things in the manual that you're able to lean into on how you can get more engagement. That engagement, um, you know, will help you understand the neighborhood situation as well as the research that you do on that in our case study, you'll hear more about that. Um, but I wanted to describe the types of neighborhood strategies that can occur. There's not a one-size-fits-all, but they're often oriented at in these four kind of buckets of of work, if you will. Um, so when you're thinking about your strategic work, it may include one or more of these, but there's, again, we're looking more holistically in a neighborhood in place than just traditional, which is often the business development side of it. So let's dig a little deeper into each of these. The community building, these are strategies that are bringing residents could even be businesses or local organizations like nonprofits together. Um, and it's typically around events um, or play- areas where they can take pride in their, their neighborhood. And that's things everything from festivals themed to your neighborhood's assets. Those assets might be around some historical things going on, an ethnic concentration, you're celebrating that ethnicity, multicultural type of activities. It could be about um, a certain food that's a favorite or something grown in the area, something seasonal, even arts and film. So you can imagine all kinds of events. They can be as simple as fairs and carnivals or holiday celebrations. I happen to live in a neighborhood that Halloween is a really big deal where we have like thousands of people that come to our, throughout our neighborhood just to enjoy together. But this is also again about community building. So we're trying to build those connections that people are coming out of their homes or their businesses and getting to know each other. So there's stronger relationships block parties being uh, organized, cookouts and picnics, parades, even outdoor concerts. I know, um, in the neighborhood I live, we you know, often have outdoor film activities because that's a way of bringing families together. Um, we talked about holiday decorations and contests. So the neighborhood, holistically, everyone's all in to try to, to um, lead up to that, that holiday. Um, even community wide garage sales. So, um, this could be even cleanup where people are working together in a neighborhood to build community, not just in the output of the work, but in doing it together. It can uh, bring more concentrated attention to it. So, um, And then as a result, that also another uh, common one could be, you know, house or garden tours where people want to come into the neighborhood and see what people have done from a decorating perspective. But it's more than just the event, it's really about um, strategizing for events, activities where people are getting to know each other and feel a part of the community. Now. So don't think of like, oh, those are just for other organizations. It may be really important when you think about building community, and you think about the work that we do to try to attract and retain talent. And yes, we are going to talk about workforce development, but community building can be huge in that that they feel that they're part of the community, and that is the result of retaining talent in your community. When it comes to Um, Oh, I I also wanted to point out that community building, you know, the planning, the work on all this is great for those within the community, within the neighborhood, but it also can have other benefits, like um, if it's a farmer's market and there is a food desert, meaning that there's not good access to certain kinds of products fresh fruits and vegetables maybe there's not access even to gift stores and things like that so there might be a craft market associated with that uh, farmers market etc that can be a way to address a gap in the marketplace the other thing it can do is actually bring wealth into the community if any of these events are attracting visitors from outside that neighborhood outside that community so there's multiple benefits oftentimes in doing these kind of things when it comes i'm going to shift over to place oriented strategies and that is fully about improving the physical assets of the neighborhood and so it focuses on the built environment and the natural amenities you know i've been in in communities where there was a river going through the town but no one had any access to that river as an example and so it was a way to uh, to bring that into their neighborhood it can also help though when we improve the environment um, and that the physical assets of the neighborhood to um, decrease crime rate with the health of the residents and the businesses, their physical health and livability. Because um, this can involve things like uh, trail systems, like um, better lighting so that there's a safer environment in the evening. It could include things like um, a better design standards. Some communities take this to a really um, big level and making it even more themed or recognized when you're actually in the neighborhood. Um, it can help improve housing values or business uh, real estate values because of um, raising the quality of um, the like that. And of course, there's opportunities then to link in different grant programs or um, to incent those. Improvements. Uh, but there could also be regulations more of the stick than the carrot with a, a grant program. Now, when it comes to an investment in green space, that would also fit here in place-oriented strategies as a way to get people out into the, the neighborhood and the community and attract them to have you know a better quality of life. But it can also be very fundamental things, like a neighborhood cleanup event where you have a beautiful built space, but people are you know, leaving sofas and different things out on the curb. I worked in a small community in Oklahoma, and they're like, we had pickup days, but they would leave them there and for an extended period of time. So by changing the regulations and providing more frequent pickups that were uh, publicized, was a simple way to clean up the place the neighborhood that they were trying to show had higher value so um some of you may be involved in affordable housing um or more diverse housing stock, and, your community is, and you're finding that in order to attract different demographics and Diversify your community more. That multi-family needed, or vice versa, in that area to increase the concentration of population. So there's a, a wide variety of things that relate to place-oriented strategies, and this really just becomes that tangible again—built environment or uh, the natural amenities that induce people, make it more desirable where they may want to live or and of course, uh, shop uh, Now, I think, and you'll hear more about this shortly, this could also include just simply redevelopment of existing places, a very intentional uh, redevelopment of eyesore structures and areas. The Neighborhood Revitalization Tax Exemption is a tool that can help you with this. but it, it also could mean that um, as simple things in, play, in place oriented is wayfinding or just signage that help you recognize that you are in a specific neighborhood. Um, having signage can be one of the things that really draws you to overlap and overlaps into business development, et cetera, because people are able to literally find their way to venues okay we got two more business development uh, this is really honing in on those things that we're more accustomed to doing uh, that are technical and financial in uh, nature to focus on uh, the growth of businesses in a particular neighborhood oftentimes this takes the um, what would I say it takes it takes the form of entrepreneurship work or business training. Uh, It could include financing like neighborhood-specific revolving loan funds, especially for high-risk, smaller businesses that could really uh, add to the quality of the neighborhood from an amenity perspective as well as from sourcing those goods locally. It could be other things too though. The training could be around social media, or other ways to do e-commerce so that they're selling beyond the neighborhood, and you know certainly a lot of that work took place in COVID when the front door of the store wasn't opened at that point. But there's a lot of opportunity to enhance traffic to a neighborhood through learning more techniques around marketing, social media, e-commerce. Of course, customer service training. I've seen communities where they make sure that all their um, front doors to their hotels, front doors to their small businesses, learn a few more tips that could also cross-pollinate sales across the neighborhood. This could also include um, assistance, especially for smaller business around permitting. Um, Again, I'm going to mention signage. Just like we talked about wayfinding, um, some communities and neighborhoods like to work with their small businesses to have more of a presence in their signage. A simple thing when you think about neighborhood strategy, a lot of storefronts might have a flat sign and communities will say, what if we had signage that as someone's walking down the street could actually see those um, businesses a lot better. It could also be things around shop local programs. Again, we're trying to drive the business, you know, the, the sales into the local neighborhood. And that could be community wide, but it also could be very neighborhood specific because of events that are tied in. So these could cross pollinate as strategies as well. There could be additional surveys and outreach to understand what the neighborhood is seeking to have as a business locally. This could help with entrepreneurs to understand what kind of businesses to start up or those that you might want to recruit in. Uh, let's see. Um, oh, another really cool thing, not just customer service training, but this can include product display training and coaching. I know I worked in a community, it was kind of a rural community outside of Yosemite National Park. And they had some businesses that were really good at displaying items and many that were not. And so they, they didn't even have to look outside of their their main street district. They just their, their businesses, their neighbor businesses. To uh, display products in a way that would draw people into the store and also buy more as a result of those displays. So don't think that you always have to bring the expertise in from outside the neighborhood. You may have a way to cross pollinate the strengths of the neighborhood. So lots and lots of things that you can do business oriented. And again, All the strategy work should come grassroots. So what do the businesses want? What are their challenges or their pain points specific in that area that you can um, get either through a business walk or bringing them together in other ways so that you can find ways to specifically help that neighborhood. Don't come right in with all the suggestions. The idea is to really understand what the needs and desires are, and then figure out how, Collectively, how you may solve that. So, we're on to our last um, kind of bucket of uh, workforce development, which is the last bucket of neighborhood strategies. And this is, if you just think about it, it's about connecting people in a neighborhood to the jobs in the neighborhood. That would be ideal. But it's also, you know, if it's a business district and there aren't a lot of neighborhoods, then how are you connecting nearby neighborhoods, other workers that could come and work in the neighborhood? And this can take the form of everything from job fairs to internship programs specifically to an area. Maybe there are career fairs that you could organize in the local schools that would then help with your storefront retailers um, as they go off to summer break or something like that. Um, This also could be apprenticeship programs sponsored by your local neighborhood businesses. Could be generic, you know, not generic. um, fundamentals training on work ethic, what it means to show up on time, what it means to be foundationally a really good employee. And that may be a new skill set. I know that I need to see Uh, awarded uh, several years back a really um, interesting strategy around workforce development that was doing outreach in faith uh, organizations, faith-based organizations, so that they could find the people that needed the work the most that were already local and could walk to work. So, um, you know, think about that granular level of workforce development strategies. Along that line, I said walk to work. Um, In some cases, neighborhoods need a little help in that way. And there may be some transportation workforce resources that you could um, bring together to serve all of those workers and businesses together. I know in some cases, industrial districts have co-opted together on vans where they're able to have people carpool together in those vans. In the same way, childcare often could be a challenge um, that, that is hard for individuals to overcome when they don't have childcare to work. And so again, that co-opting or looking at strategies, there might be an entrepreneurship opportunity um, for a new childcare facility um, that would serve the workers in the neighborhood. Um, It also could include, depending on the size and the need of your neighborhood, publicizing um, uh, wage and benefit surveys that can help um, local employers better understand what the wages are needed in a particular area. Or even developing new types of facilities. It could be a reuse. I know I worked in a community in Oklahoma where they're reusing an old fire station. Now is a co-working space that is also adding value in an entrepreneurship space. But that can be, you know, I'm going to speak to all of you in rural areas. If you have a hard time with uh, access to quality broadband internet, um, co-opting that kind of space may be a way that you can mitigate that weakness and really add value in a neighborhood as well. So, those are kind of the four types of neighborhood strategies. Again, you're going to want to define that strategy and involve the, the people and businesses of that neighborhood. Uh, have them really lean in to be part of the dialogue, lead the dialogue um, around what you want to accomplish. And then bring the principles in in a way that's very effective. And I'll just do a shout out for the manual. In the manual, we actually have um, written out designs uh, um, designs for um, what do I say it uh, Designs for how how to hold uh, meetings both with neighborhood residents and businesses. So literally you can pick that up and follow the way through that. Um, as a way to lean into what people in the neighborhood want to do with the strategy. So. With that, that's what I have so that you can go on to hear this great example. So. Great, Thank
2: you. Very you much. Yeah. thanks
3: very
4: much. Thanks very much, Allison and uh, Brian. Uh-
3: to you. okay well thank you allison and uh thank you dale for the introduction i'm just going to share my screen now
0: So, development, downtown I, uh, I wanted to
3: sort of build upon uh, what Allison just spoke about and uh, be able to give you, uh, as it says, a case study, a bit of a real-world example of something that has happened in Chilliwack, and uh, really wanting to, to focus in on a, a downtown Chilliwack component. So. Thank you like many of you, you know, downtown, uh, very historic, uh, just some images. We're on the Fraser River, so top left there are paddle wheelers. The, the community itself was formed based upon the gold rush and paddle wheelers coming up the Fraser River. You can see a few of these historic images. And like uh, many communities, the downtown was that economic hub of our community for many years. Uh, The colour photo on the right is uh, going to be a a neighbourhood that I talked about through this presentation. So, you know, building upon some of the comments that Allison just spoke about, you know, when you look at a neighbourhood, it doesn't matter whether it's a downtown or another part of a community, you know, there are desired attributes, characteristics that we sort of strive for. And specifically to a a downtown neighbourhood, you know a lot of these elements apply and it's something that you can strive for you're not necessarily going to have all of these characteristics but it's certainly aspirational uh something Allison mentioned at the beginning it's something we want to achieve as we work towards uh, redeveloping or revitalizing a neighborhood and as i go through this presentation i know there's probably people on the uh, zoom here who are from smaller communities I I again just want to share our story and hopefully there's something that you can take away uh, that builds upon the opportunities you may have within your community and it doesn't matter if it's a smaller uh, project or a larger project but it's really about the concept and the process that we went through to achieve the outcomes that I'm going to show you. One of the challenges through downtowns all over North America really is there's factors that have driven decline, whether it's a large city or a smaller uh, community. These factors have impacted many of these areas. And, you know, when you look at downtown Chilliwack, we were a prime example where the move to the suburbs, the creation of shopping malls, Uh, helped sort of take that economic activity elsewhere, which then started to create some of the other uh, areas of absentee landlords and neglect and and rising crime. And so, Chilliwack had a lot of these challenges and, you know, it's been something that uh, the community has really cared about and paid a lot of attention to. one of the things that we came across just a couple of years ago, I was quite surprised to find this document, uh, just the cover here, Downtown Chilliwack Study 1972. So I often say that the work that we've accomplished over the last few years wasn't just something that uh, it's really been decades of people planning and thinking about ways to have interventions that would help navigate the various factors that were creating decline that I showed you the topic of downtown revitalization and i'm sure it's no different in your community it's really an interesting topic because it is driven by a lot of emotions and a lot of memories of residents that have lived in that community for a a longer period of time everybody has an opinion about what downtown revitalization should be or what it should look like and to navigate that, you really do need to have strong municipal leadership. I believe it starts at a mayor and council level, comes into the city staff level, and then it's, it's our organizations, the economic development organizations that can play a significant role in that. And along with that, you need to have private sector champions, whether it's businesses that have been in your downtown for a a longer period of time people that have invested their time and energy into to creating hopeful success and then ultimately it really does take time and it takes patience and I'll, I'll share a bit of that but it's really important to remember that this does not happen overnight in chilliwack like many communities we have a downtown chilliwack business improvement association uh here it was created in 1995 and they do many of the uh, traditional things that a bia will do in a community they are very focused on beautification greening uh, working with the city on on the flower baskets and other elements of greening facade improvements you can see that rendezvous restaurant the torn awning and working with businesses to improve their exterior marketing events security garbage cleanup the likes, all very important things that have been uh, successful to a degree in Chilliwack and you know something that is valuable even still moving forward. The organization I work for is the Chilliwack Economic Partners Corporation. We were created in 1998 uh, as an arm's length economic development organization for the city of Chilliwack. I'm not a city employee but uh, we are owned as a corporation by the city and led by a private sector board of directors. So as I say, we've had decades of work, decades of planning. The city of Chilliwack made a decision back uh, in around 2010 that they wanted to start a more uh, purposeful focus on the downtown. And there was a lot of effort and work that went into a variety of uh, committees and reports this downtown core task force, uh, I think the thing that is important to note here, and as Allison mentioned, is that it involved a broad spectrum of people from the community, residents, business owners, various stakeholders, people that all had a, an interest in seeing the downtown revitalized. And through that process, there were reports that were created and a plan that was put into place that final report that came out of that downtown core task force uh, it did involve a lot of community consultation Uh, it was very focused on trying to find those points of consensus and as i said at the start there with emotions and and various opinions that can be difficult but you still want to strive for that and then as well as focusing in on best practices for redevelopment out of that recommendations were included in the report and one of them was that the city would assemble land for development now so that when the market market conditions were right we would be able to attract uh, a revitalization project that took a leap of faith for any of you that might be on this that are elected officials or that watch it at some point You know it it can be scary sometimes when you have to step outside of what maybe is traditional again mentioning the bia and, and those focuses and in chilliwack the mayor and council wanted to expedite the redevelopment process they wanted to go beyond the investments that had already been made in greening and infrastructure upgrades and it really did take strong political leadership there was a risk factor to doing this but the decision was made that between Cid, the city, and SEPCO that we chose a block where we consolidated 21 uh, very different properties and viewed that as an investment in the downtown's future. So that 20, those 21 properties equate to about just under four acres. You can see here, um, this area is called Five Corners. It's the very core of our downtown. Where downtown Chilliwack started in uh, 1858. And this site was prime in terms of its location and proximity to many of the other uh, important aspects of our downtown. So once those properties were consolidated, it took uh, about seven years to do that. And uh, it was a process, no question. We were fortunate that there was one owner that owned probably half of them. Um, But still, there was no private sector developer that would have been interested at that time. It didn't make economic sense for them to come in and consolidate those 21 properties on their own. So it did take the city and Sefco intervening to make that possible. And when we got to the point where we were ready to move forward in 2017, we just we had to talk a lot about well, what is it we want to do. We've now consolidated these properties. We don't want to just throw up a for sale sign and have uh, you know the highest bidder basically come in and, and buy these properties. We really wanted to have some control over the outcome and to manage the process to ensure that that risk was mitigated politically and also the outcome for the community was maximized. So we hosted uh, an event with the Urban Development Institute. That's us uh, walking about downtown. We walked around the site. We talked about the vision. We showed them other aspects of the downtown. And ultimately, um, we issued this request for proposals at that event, and it outlined very clearly what the expectations were, what the opportunity was, but there was no price attached it was left up to the individual developers to come forward with their proposal and a price that they were willing to pay we were very fortunate we received multiple uh, proposals each of them was completely different which was uh, really positive in many ways because it gave us things to consider and One of the things that I have to admit, and I've said to other people, is that we went in with an expectation of what that outcome should be. And the proposal that came in was completely opposite to what we thought it should be. So the Elliver Brothers Developments uh, Company based in Abbotsford at the time, came forward with a, a proposal to create something completely different, a pedestrian oriented, very European, um, shopping destination and entertainment district that also curated the tenant mix, brought the right tenants in and did very high quality finishings It's today. It's called District 1881. In 2018, we uh, we launched the partnership with Ellicott Brothers. And ultimately the key here is, you know, because of the amount of time and effort that went into downtown, a lot of people in the community said, I'll believe it when I see it. This has been talked about before, you know, that's nice. You've got a new company, but what are they going to do? And ultimately they more than delivered, uh, the city and SEPCO remained a partner with them and sort of supporting their efforts. And it's been a huge catalyst for our downtown. When you look at the top picture here, this is uh, along the main road, Yale Road. You can see the type of businesses that were there. Uh, in just this photo, there's, you know, cash stores, pawn shops, um, you know, fairly marginal businesses that uh, came and went throughout the downtown. You can see that some of the buildings look a little bit, bit more historic this the photos down below are are of this street today so woolly dog alley is where copper city exchange and key west jewelry and loans was the Alger brothers removed those two buildings and started the process of creating these pedestrian alleys and uh, bringing these business these buildings up to a different level when you look at this today same building with the blue vinyl siding, uh, down below uh, coffee shop, Uptown Grill is still there in the same location. These two, uh, buildings up uh, to a very different field where you've got uh, Fieldhouse Brewing, so craft brewery, there's office spaces and down those alleys a lot of the buildings in downtown Chilliwack are long and narrow so they created better leasable spaces you were able to get more uh, businesses into one building versus just having one frontage this building here the taller one is uh, an important historical building in downtown it was from 1912 it used to be a theater and uh, you can see the vape shops etc there on the left today uh, it's a a restaurant called bowen stern which is a, a seafood restaurant and then beside that, there was this gold steam and vape store. They removed those two uh, buildings to create the patio space where the trees are that you see. And that building with the glass front—that is the building that you see with the brick, and, and uh, it's another craft brewery called Bricklayer Brewery. So they they took and utilized these historic buildings. They made some of the old look new. They made. Um, that look very different when you look at what bricklayer looks like compared to that uh, old bank building and then better utilization of the space. This old building, again, lots of uh, underutilized space, lots of police space in the downtown. This was demolished. Today, These, uh, the lower pictures are under construction. This is another pedestrian access alley that's going to take you into the heart of the development. So, again, very European. Uh, residential upstairs in some cases, live-work type opportunities. This uh, top left picture is the Empress Hotel. Certainly not the Empress of Victoria, but our Empress, and it wasn't uh, um, serving a lot of good in the in the downtown for years. Today, this uh, beautiful new apartment is on that site again, part of that four-acre site. And then this is what you're seeing, and. This is all in a matter of three and a half years, but it's been unbelievable the momentum that's been created by creating a vision, by finding private sector partners, by being willing to take a risk, finding the, the buildings or the, the elements that were worth saving, and then creating an environment where people want it to be. So there's outside patios, there's ages of all types, young and old, there's a, a really new... Uh, excitement and emotion about what downtown is and there's a pride that has been developed by that and uh, what it's done is it's been that pebble in the, in the lake that's created the ripple effect throughout downtown and the property values, the, the lease rates, the lack of available space to lease and the new developments that are happening all around are exactly what we hope would be achieved by doing this. So. With that, I will uh, open it up, if there's any questions, and turn it back to you, Dale.
4: Great. Uh, thanks very much, Ryan. Uh, it really is incredible what uh, has happened in downtown in, Chilliwack. Uh, in uh, and, and I like what you said there at the end, isn't that it, you, you, create,
2: you, you, when you
4: wanted to create that environment that would be that catalyst, if you will. To drive other types of developments around it. And I think, you know, it's like a resort attracts another resort. You know, a good development like that's gonna attract another good development in that same area. So I think, you know, that that there, uh what you what you just showed is really that example. And I, I think you know, I, re- I remember the consultation that went on. I remember like
3: charrettes
4: and I remember all these things that really went on. It wasn't just that you decided one day or the city decided one day, this is what we're going to do. It took a lot of consultation and input from the businesses that are there, some that are not there anymore. Uh, some that, you know, and people that lived in the area and then also outside of that area, and I think that's a lot of what Allison uh, really. Talked about as well is that engagement piece that you know it isn't just as simple as you sit in your office and, and drawing up a plan and saying hey, this is what we're going to do. And if you did that, Brian, congratulations because uh, it's a really good job. The uh, I like Ashley's comment there. There's a lot of good places to drink and eat. That actually concerns me, Ashley. I'm not sure how much I yeah, so, uh, <laughs> um, the you know one of the- that the province of BC did, and, uh, and this was done a number of years ago. And the and the legislation is still in place in section uh, 226 of the of the uh, BC municipal charter, allowing communities. Uh, you know, as, as as we all know, we don't offer typically incentives in British in Columbia. It's something that that actually is costly as illegal to do but the one that hasn't been approved and allowed is the is that bc revitalization tax exemptions and i know that the city of Chilliwack has this in uh the downtown core and, and potentially other areas i'm not sure if the agriculture the, the park was that way or not as well uh, brian uh, but yeah so do a lot of other communities and and, be, and besides that Besides using that program, which allows you to do a phased-in approach to if, if a company did uh, a redevelopment of an area and they did a phased-in approach uh, on their tax increases because it would increase assessed values. Uh, so some communities have decided to do that at one point in time. I know the village of, of Logan Lake uh was an entire was the entire community that they had designated the entire community has revitalization tax credit they've just finished updating their bylaws uh here in the last um, and actually this summer they they passed the official changes uh, to, their, to their bylaws on the Revitalize. I'm not sure exactly what changes that made, but, but Ashley will share the link to that. Uh, and I'd encourage you to look at that. I know that uh, other communities, whether you're an indigenous community, a small community, have adopted uh, different types of programs and initiatives. And I think the one thing, though, that is common through all of them is that it's been done in consultation. And, and you can, you can't just do it by yourself. And so I'd encourage you to look at uh, for indigenous communities to look at Hawaii and what they've done with Bamfield and and the leadership role that they've taken sort of similar in some ways to what brian has talked about in where you know you purchased uh you did some land consolidation you did things you did a lot of this redevelopment yourself and the hawaiian first nations took and did this in in uh, bamfield as well uh as well as uh, the shimaitis indian band and the oyster bay development that, that colleen talked about here uh in one of our previous presentations is another great example of sort of Consulting with the indigenous communities uh, around the area and determining what it is you want to do with those lands, and 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 then just doing it and taking the lead and being proactive. And and, and what happened is, is they once they pulled one development in, they started to be able to pull other developments in. So again, it's taking that you know using one of them as a catalyst. So. Um, I don't uh, see any questions that have come in if anybody had any questions feel free to either unmute yourself or uh, or type it in uh, if not uh, i will uh, i will end the webinar with a huge thank you to brian and allison for uh, agreeing to do this presentation I, I would like to see us do more uh, and, and we hopefully will the, the manual has been released it's it's uh, i believe it's available for download uh, there is some examples in there uh, those links that are in there will be turned into written best practices over time as we get more we wanted to make sure we had the most up-to-date information so we're going to be working with those communities to sort of write a little best practice uh, that will go into into the manuals and we'll keep people informed of any changes that may happen uh again i want to thank everybody for for participating i know some of you have been on every single webinar and that's fantastic and we hope that you've been provided with the value that you were looking for uh we hope that you'll participate in future bcba uh, webinars but also our bc economic summit i am not 100 percent sure we've we have announced this yet but the uh, bc economic summit for 2023. Uh, Will be held April 16th, 18th in in Penticton. Uh, And there's some great things there. Great, uh, we have some great activities of treating it as sort of a reunion uh, and creating that wealth factor in in our community. So uh, I hope you'll all participate in that as well. So again, thanks very much. And I hope everybody has a great uh, rest of their
2: week.
5: visitors to the beautiful, expansive Strathcona Regional District. To get the most out of your visit, be sure to check our Visitor Information Center locations. Campbell River's Tourist Information Center is located in downtown Campbell River, adjacent to the Art Gallery. The Quadra Island Tourist Information Center is adjacent to the Coastal Community Credit Union, which is on the right after exiting the Kwathiaski Cove ferry Terminal. Sayward's Tourist Information Center is located at the wharf inside Ocean View Gifts. Gold River's Tourist Information Center is located on the right-hand side of the entrance to the village. The Tassus Tourist Information Center is located on Rugged Mountain Road on the far side of the Tassus River. Don't miss out on some of the local destinations. Some highlights include the spectacular Elk Falls suspension bridge in Campbell River, the challenging Ripple Rock hike, the Serene Beaver Lodge Lands, the Interpretive Tai Spit and Estuary, and the award-winning Campbell River Museum. The Strathcona Regional District is home to many communities worth visiting, including the coastal communities of Campbell River and Sayward, the island communities of Quadra and Cortez Island, and the west coast communities of Gold River, Tassas, Zeballos, and Cayucut. Catch a ferry from Campbell River to Quadra Island, leaving 30 minutes past the hour between 6.30 a.m. and 10.30 p.m. on most sailings. Be sure to arrive early to avoid sailing waits as reservations are not available. Catch a connecting second ferry from Quadra Island to Cortez Island on the odd hour from 9 a.m. to 7 p.m. For more information on sailing times and details on current conditions, browse to bcferries.com. Enjoy your stay.
6: ways that Ithaca is approaching these challenges so hopefully everyone's ready to take some notes and learn. Dr. Luis Aguirre torres is the Director of Sustainability for the City of Ithaca where he is in charge of the design and implementation of the city's decarbonization and climate justice strategies. He is also co-chair of the New York State Climate Impact Assessment Society and Economy Technical Working Group and prior to joining the City of Ithaca he was President and CEO of Green Momentum a think tank organization specialized in climate change legislation, as well as renewable energy deployment and financing. In 2012 and 2016, he was recognized by the White House for his work promoting climate justice in Latin America. I know he has some good stories about the White House as well, so maybe he can touch on those. Um, So I just wanted to quickly mention for everybody, we're in meeting format today so that there's some more opportunities for um, conversation and for folks in the audience to jump in. So please keep your, on while you're not talking and then you can use your hand raise function if you want to say something and there'll be lots of time for questions and discussion at the end. So with that, I will pass it over to Dr. Torres. Thank you.
7: Thank you very much and, and really I appreciate this opportunity to have a conversation with you. Uh, I want to tell you a bit more about myself. You know, when people introduce you like that, it's, it's always weird. <laughs> so, so let me just tell you about me on, on the other side and now it's, it's just the screen, just two calories. Okay. Um, so I, uh, I'm originally from Mexico. I went to school there, uh, uh, but then, you know, I, I, you know, like a lot of Mexicans, you know, I wanted to, you know, after school I wanted to probably go to the United States. I ended up going to England actually. So I went to grad school in England where I did a master's and a PhD. And uh, and my PhD is one of the most useless things I've ever done in my entire life. Um, I, I, my PhD is in entropy. Uh, oh. and you know it, it was fun if you're on there but honestly it's one of those things that you don't know what to do with it but uh, I mean in, in a funny way it kind of informed what I do today because for a really long time I've been obsessed about finding order in chaos and, and that's uh, you know climate change is one of those very chaotic problems that we have that uh, you know obsessed me, uh, obsessed me a little bit so anyway uh, after that I became an entrepreneur and I you living in Israel for a while, and I, I lived in Korea, and then I went back to Silicon Valley, California, where I started working on climate change, uh, working with the Schwarzenegger administration, and then my think tank was hired by the Obama administration. So then I was working with the Obama administration for a while. And I do have some stories, um, uh, and uh, I, I think I know which one you mean—the uh, <laughs> one when I, uh, the night before the White House, I believe, probably. Uh, so I, I, I want to share that with you because I think. Helps inform a lot what I'm doing, but you know, in doing so, I, I, and I don't mean to take too much of your time. I believe that there's is, there's is two moments in my life where, where you know things were telling me you need to go in that direction, and and one of them happened very early in life when I was about 14. Uh, when I was, I, I used to live in a in gang territory in Mexico City, uh, and on, on the uh, east side of the city, uh, and my brother joined a gang. He was very young, and. Uh, my first dead body when i was probably eight and it wasn't the last unfortunately and uh but that was the neighborhood i was growing up in and one day as i was going to school i was probably 14 one of the gang leaders stopped me and i truly thought that i was gonna you know that was it for me and uh and, and he told me that if he ever saw me you know smoking or drinking or hanging out with gang bangers uh he will beat the crap out of me so in a funny way he he kept an eye on me all the way to college, and uh, and that's probably the reason I, I I didn't join the gang like my brother did. So that that set me on the right track, and then I went to England, and uh, and it was funny because I think one of the saddest moments of my life was when my brother called me to tell me that this guy had died. So it was you know it, it's a funny thing how how little things that you don't expect that are not technical at all that are not supposed to happen in life end up defining you know the rest of what you do. Because what I was thinking is. You know, like if this person had had the opportunity, you know, to have a different life, you know, like I did, you know, what could have happened, right? So the second moment was uh, I had this successful project in, uh, in in climate justice project in Latin America uh, to the point that one day President Obama invited me to the White House to talk about that project. Uh, And the night before, that visit to the White House, I I was hanging out outside a hotel that the White House was paying for. Uh, and and uh, and I was using the phone and somebody complained about somebody, you know, feeding my description uh, that was lingering outside a fancy hotel. Uh, so the police came and arrested me. So the night before I was supposed to be in the White House, I was arrested and I was being interrogated. And, and these guys, I, I refused to say where I was in Washington, because I was afraid that they called the president he was not gonna see me because I had been just arrested so so I kept my mouth shut and uh, and it was a very stressful horrible night to be honest it was supposed to be you know some of the best days of my life really and and they weren't and, uh, and they left bruises you know the way I was arrested and everything so the uh, next day when I, I, I you know they let me go really early so when I finally was able to go and, and see the president he was was funny because he asked me how i was doing and i, I didn't dare to say anything you know, i said he was like okay but that taught me so many things you know one of them is that racial relations in america are far from what they should be and after 2020 you know we can say that we haven't made any progress at all uh and that informs a lot of what i do you know those two incidents uh, have led me to focus on climate change as a climate change side to equity, you know, equity always has to be in the middle. Everything has to be, you know, there has to be a real human reason behind everything that we do. So it doesn't matter if we do technology, finance, or or policy, it always has to be, you know, people first. So I'm sorry about that very long introduction. I I don't need to bore you with that, Um, but uh, that's who I am, and that's probably part why they hired me. Um, I I have a quick presentation. Uh, I want to share that with you. Uh, how long do we have, Alex?
6: <laughs> so, we have until the end of the hour, so it's, uh, whatever, it's 2.15 for me about, so we have until three of my
7: time. Uh, okay, so so we can do probably 20-minute presentation, and we can just go into conversation mode, is that okay?
6: Yeah, for sure.
7: Okay, perfect, so let me share my screen. Uh, uh, can you see my screen? Yep, looks good. Okay, perfect. So, uh, you know,
0: says, let me take you very quickly. Green New Deal. In Ithaca. Okay. So the first thing
7: is, uh, you know, in, in 2019, the city of Ithaca decided to pass a, a resolution mm. adopting the Ithaca Green New Deal. And this was the way the city was, you know, putting its foot down, basically deciding we're going to fight climate change. But at the same time that we're fighting climate change, we're going to try to address historical inequities, economic inequality, and racial injustice. And this was, uh, you know, a very important step for a city that was known to be but have not really done much, you know, you know, in any of these areas. And, you know, several initiatives started in 20, 2019, including reimagining public safety. Well, that, that happened in 2020. But they took a green new deal and was followed by the reimagining public safety. But the problem was, was COVID hit. And then the city really couldn't do much right after. Uh, so, you know, the priorities changed, like for everybody else. But, you know, this thing was there. And in, in 2021, in April last year, uh, they hired me. I had, uh, you know, uh, I I had stepped down from my job in in Latin America, working for the State Department, and decided to come back to it and work my identity. So I was here very happily employed, and then I heard that the city wanted somebody to run with this, to run with the Green New Deal, to help design and implement this, and you know you can read all the objectives and all the goals but the truth is you know the core is at the very top you know like it's carbon neutrality community wide by 2030 while at the same time addressing historical inequities economic inequality and, and racial injustice the thing is i look at climate change in a in a slightly different way for, compared to other people that work in the in the, in the climate movement uh, i am uh, i look at it entirely from an economic perspective i don't think it's a social or an environmental issue however It is an economic issue that has very serious social and environmental ramifications. So when I look at it, I need to focus on on economic components. So so the first thing was, okay, if I were to look at this as an economic issue, what do I have to do? And some of you may be familiar with the Kaya identity, for example, but, you know, there are different models in which, you know, we try to to see not only climate change, but the effect climate change has on the economy, has on society and everything else. So, you know, when we look at it uh, and we think about, okay, what we need to do is to reduce carbon emissions, uh, what we need to do first is to reduce energy intensity, right? So what we need to do is to reduce energy use for every economic uh, output unit. And, uh, and then, you know, if we're going to do that, we also need to look into carbon intensity, that is, you know, the emissions for unit.
2: So energy intensity
7: is not necessarily the same, uh, I mean, reducing energy intensity is not the same as energy efficiency, but it's very, very close. And what you can see in this, this fake graph is that I didn't put Mm -hmm. in there 100% carbon emissions reduction uh, or even carbon intensity because there is always a a carbon emissions factor that we need to take into account. Um, Also, in terms of energy Um, intensity, you know, we need to bring energy intensity down to at
0: least 50% wherever Uh, possible.
7: The other thing about looking at this from an economic perspective was that uh, you know my first conversation with the mayor. I remember thinking, you know, like they didn't, they they had this purely environmental
2: perspective of what
7: was going on. So when I came in with this, I was like, you know, to take it even further, we need we look at this from an economic perspective. We need to think of it as a a market failure. Uh, At the end of the day, the market is not working in the same way for everybody. There are asymmetries in power and benefits, there are negative externalities, asymmetries in information. The utility company has disproportionate power. But at the end of the day, it's just not working and it's not promoting the welfare of the community. So if we were to think of this as a market failure, my proposal was we need to deploy uh, marketing instruments before we deploy institutional instruments, before we deploy regulatory instruments. So my goal was not to mess with policy, but rather develop special programs assessment. that would incentivize the market to behave in a particular way. To start with that, you know, we need to look at emissions. So the first thing that I did was okay, great.
2: So it just like uh, I took
7: information from jelly. everywhere that I had. I did not perform a climate, uh, sorry, uh, a greenhouse gas inventory. Uh, what I actually did was mathematical modeling. You know, hence the you know the obsession with, with entropy and that kind of thing. But I I did mathematical modeling to to more or less understand, given the type of economy that we had, the population that we had. You know, what are the more likely number of emissions that we have and what, what were the most likely sources of those emissions. Eventually, we did develop a protocol-based greenhouse gas inventory and we came up with 210,000 metric tons of CO2 equivalent. But when we did the modeling about a year and a half ago, we came up with close to 400,000. So that was the number we were working with. And uh, also in terms of the distribution, we saw that 40% of our emissions come from buildings and that is energy used inside buildings. Most of them coming from the space heating because of the winters that we have in Ithaca. And some of it came from water heating and some of it came from dry clothes and, and, and cooking. Then uh, in terms of uh transportation, about 40% of the emissions come from transportation, mostly passenger vehicles. And then in Ithaca, we have about 80% carbon-free electricity because we rely on nuclear and hydro. So, you know, only 15% of the emissions in the city come from, from the electric grid. And 5% come from waste and land management. And and this is important because you you can see from our emissions that we have a very simple economy. We don't have industry, So that makes my job slightly easier in a way, but it's slightly more difficult because, you know, I require a ton of people to do the right thing. Uh, So there is no mandate. uh, And and once again, because we're looking at this as a uh, market-driven approach to decarbonization. So so by doing that also, and and giving the... That, that we had a deadline for 2030. I, uh, I I mentioned to the major that we need to do this, um, like, like, we need to think about cross-cutting measures rather than, than thinking vertical sectors, which is what normally people do. So I was like, what if we were to think of this in terms of energy efficiency? That is, you know, across every aspect of the economy, we maximize efficiency and we reduce the intensity. For example, for, for transportation, it means people using transit reducing the number of miles traveled per vehicle. And in terms of buildings energy efficiency is thermal efficiency then we could do the carbonization of the electricity that we have and then we can electrify everything that we can electrify you know in general you know if you uh, before coming to itaca i, I had a stint at the, the international energy agency where i was looking at uh, electrification and, and other technologies and, and i remember like that we came up with a number which was 65 percent of the energy stock in the planet can be electrified the rest requires low carbon fuels or you know Fumes. You know, there are really no alternatives at times. But in the city of Ithaca, we can talk about 90% that can be electrified. So in thinking that way, I realized, you know, I don't just that we have we were doing efficiency across plastics, we could reduce 30% of the emissions. And then another third through electrification. So 60% of the emissions could actually go away through energy efficiency and electrification. And there is no reason why we need to do one after the other. You know, we, we think we thought that we could do this at the same time. But then we are electrifying the city, emissions in the city would actually go up because we would be relying on more electricity. So we need to find a way of decarbonizing our electric And that would take us to a 50% reduction in terms of uh, energy intensity, a 90% reduction in terms of carbon intensity, and then it would leave us with about 20% of emissions. And those emissions rely on low carbon fuels, like hydrogen, and it would have to rely on carbon-negative technology. But here's the thing, um, when, when, sorry this was supposed to be an animation, but what you have in front of you is like a ton of information and and, and I used this as slide when I talked to the city council. So if, if you look at the top part when it says the energy efficiency 30%, uh, what I actually want to show there is, uh, and, and this was very important when I was trying to convince the city council to vote for this, you know, to let me go at it and, and then really develop this. So, in terms of buildings, it means really thermal efficiency. But in terms of waste, it means developing a circular economic model for both organic and uh, material waste. It meant that people need to use more transit, and we needed to integrate transit with other systems such as bike sharing, ride sharing, car sharing. You know, and and we needed to figure out a way of having people off vehicles. But at the same time, one of the things that I've convinced the United States is that people think it is a constitutional right. Ride a pickup truck that makes a ton of noise and produces a lot of pollution. So it's very difficult to convince people to ride a bike, uh, particularly in rural upstate New York. Uh, but in terms of electrification, we started thinking: okay, we need to replace everything that you see in that second row. We need to replace space heaters, we need to replace water heaters, cooktops, and clothes dryers. And when we were thinking about, you know, space heating and water heating, you know, we thought that, you know, like it makes sense. The technology is there, you know. Heat pumps are mature enough, but you know, and, and they are so efficient that, that it makes sense in most cases if, if the furnace that we are replacing has reached end of life or, or is you know fully depreciated. Um but then we start looking, okay, you know, if we were to do to, to energy efficiency, and that is, you know, we were to have a tight envelope in every building, we were to do air ceiling, insulation, change windows, ventilation systems. And then we were to, you know, not to do electrification, then the indoor air quality actually worse because the emissions will be trapped so we needed to do electrification at the same time and then we thought okay if we were to do this at the same time we need to think about cooktops and and we need to think about induction and then you know it was very interesting because we saw when when we got to global dryers we realized that the type of installation that we needed for a heat pump for drying clothes was exactly the same type of electrical installation that we needed for uh, EV charging stations so given that you know, my building stock in Ithaca is got about uh, 80%, uh, you know, 40% was built before uh, before 1920, about 80% before 1940. So I really have only 20% of my buildings that were built, you know, later. For the most part, we've been repurposing buildings. And, and what that means is that they, they're wiring, the breaker boxes, they're all you know, screwed up, to be honest. So we need to, to change that. But then there is an advantage in doing that because you know we, we found these economic benefits of co-deploying clothes dryers, PV charging stations that nobody was expecting to find. I mean, we, we are talking about you know, huge savings citywide in terms of you know the benefits of doing this at the same time. But we also find economic benefits in co-deploying heat pumps and solar rooftop solar in the city. Uh, you know, we have a, a good database of our buildings, and I know for a fact that I have 1,200 roofs. That are ideal for solar in the city. And that would allow me to bring you know, the amount of solar that we have at least you know, to twice what it is today. And that would offset probably 20% of the, the electricity related emissions that we have in the city. But also when we're thinking about decarbonization and thinking if we were to electrify the entire city, you know, the distribution grid will not hold. You know, it would be very complicated. And so we need to add some flexibility to that. And we thought about you know utility scale energy storage so we started looking at you know a couple of substations and we realized that for example we we know that uh, i could not electrify more than 15 percent of the city if i don't add any storage so in in a couple of substations so it became part of the project but once again you know we're thinking about doing this at the same time and, and you know on one hand people think we're totally nuts for trying that but on the other i don't see any other option you know like this is the only way that you can actually have scale you can really take advantage of economic benefits of, of doing this at the same time. Um, we started looking at, at low-carbon fuels, and this was a wonderful discovery. You know, we were looking at, at the wastewater treatment plant that we have, and the process is, is kind of simple. You know, we have all the stuff that comes in the sewer and some of the food scraps that also come to the wastewater treatment plant. We put everything in a biodigester, everything comes with like 80% you know, water. Uh, you know, after a while, it produces biogas. We use that biogas to power the, the, you know, at least 30 or 40 percent of the operations of the wastewater treatment plant. But then we were left with sludge that that was being taken to the landfill. And then we were like, no, I mean, that, those are emissions that were actually sent away. Why didn't we were to put that into a pyrolysis system? And that pyrolysis system were able were, were to, you know, separate water. You know, it's 80 percent water. So if we were able to separate that. Maybe that water can be used for electrolyzers. And then we realized that uh, the the excess energy in a ferrozy system could be used to power electrolyzers, supplementing the solar installation that we had. So we thought, okay, we could actually have a project that is waste to hydrogen. And then something something happened at the same time that we were considering this project. The transit authority, you know, we got, uh, it's it's a fleet of about 50 buses, and we got seven electric buses. Ready and we're going to have five more, you know, within the next few months. And the idea is to have 100% electric buses. But these beasts, they really charge at 150 watts, uh, kilowatts, sorry. And uh, and that basically prevents the transit authority from charging more than three buses at the same time because it will bring the city's distribution ring. So that is the problem with having obsolete installations, right? So, so we thought, okay, even though this may seem crazy and it may seem uh, from a thermodynamic perspective highly efficient the reality is that we were to do this waste to hydrogen project and that hydrogen were to be put into fuel cells we could actually have charging stations for our buses that would allow for all of our buses all 50 to connect and charge just for hours so we are developing an installation using hydrogen to power electric buses in the city and we're assessing the opportunity also for uh, electric refuse trucks and hydrogen power uh, refuse trucks and then some carbon negative technologies as i mentioned like like biochar you know like where we can actually sequester emissions uh, and and some other natural things and and at this point carbon capture and sequestration is, is not you know keeping me up at night you know like i know the technology is evolving and you know we're gonna be there when it's ready but uh, if you look at the right side, uh, you know, and, and, and if you go, like, you see this guy holding climate justice now, and, you know, that is core and center. And, you know, there are so many reasons why we need to, to think about it this way. We think about everything that needs to happen. You know, where will it happen first? You know, it, it, so it happens that, that the distribution grid is one of the main barriers to do full electrification and so it happens too that the fancier neighborhoods you know people that make twice a median income in the city you know they live in big houses so there is it's not overcrowded so the circuit capacity in each one of those neighborhoods is actually okay so we could do electrification but when we have multifamily buildings with low-income people in, in overcrowded uh, units you know the circuits are our capacity so it turns out that if we're going to install energy storage it's going to be in those neighborhoods where can actually add the necessary flexibilities so we can electrify those buildings. And then, also from an equity perspective, if you think about this, we are replacing close to 100,000 machines uh, in the city of Itaca. 100,000. Uh, somebody has to do that, and somebody has to deal with the waste, somebody has to separate parts and recycle. So, so we need a huge workforce. We actually determined that we need about 3,000 people in the city to do this. And, and here's the thing, we're 30,000, so three thousand people to do this, and this is a proper econometric model that allows us to really understand, you know, what are the workforce needs in the city. So to do this, uh, you know, we need to get really creative in terms of workforce development, and, and we we actually went outside the city to talk to the different, uh, you know, neighbor neighboring cities, and, and we we made a proposal. We were like, look, the city is electrifying everything. We are decarbonizing the city. There is huge opportunity. We don't have the people. And, you know, and, and in the case of Elmira, they have a lot of uh, formerly incarcerated people that were living there and were unemployed. And in the case of Rochester, it was mostly the black and brown communities that were uh, uh, unemployed. And in the case of, of the surrounding areas in Ithaca, we had a lot of undocumented immigrants that needed a job. So it, it became a really good opportunity to bring these frontline communities to be part of a new workforce development program that would allow them to participate in everything that we're doing. And and then, you know, the bottom on the right side, you have uh, the need for a resilient and reliable infrastructure. And what that means is, you know, if we are to electrify the city, we better do it right. And we better take into account everything. And here's where in the United States, at least, you know, you need to make a very important distinction between what is paid with taxpayers' money and what is paid with ratepayers' money and what can be paid by private investors. So in working on, on on the infrastructure the distribution grid, you know, private investors can come in with a non-wires alternative and provide energy storage, for example. But then the federal government needs to come in with federal distribution, the state and through the Public Utility Commission, that has to pay for the distribution grid upgrades. So, as you can see, the level of complexity was just growing as we as we were getting into this project. It was it was very difficult. But at the end of the day, we are building something different. We are building something from an energy perspective that resembles a virtual power plant. So, you know, we could continue doing what we were doing, or we could do almost what we want to do. We could do just you know about a third of our buildings in terms of electrification, and we could just address part of. A, uh, you know, the emissions coming from the grid we could also you know probably try to do more maybe even you know 100 of our buildings 100 of our vehicles and we would still need to contend with some of the emissions but if we were to do everything and that is everything leaf blowers uh snow flowers uh everything that we have in the city we were to become electric and emissions free we estimate that the cost would be around two billion dollars uh, that means we need to find a way of paying for this And that's when things got really interesting, because if you think up until this moment what we had was, okay, we know what the emissions are, we know where the emissions come from, we have a cross-cutting strategy that would allow us to accelerate decarbonization, minimizing energy intensity, reducing the amount of carbon in every unit of energy, and would allow us to tackle, you know, our buildings, our transportation, our waste, Uh, we would even, you know, change the way we do land uh, management. But then you know, we, we, we have a problem, you know, it's $2 billion, so uh, I, I just want to mention, you know, these are, you know, in my office, we, we, we have the, a total of 14 different programs, and what you have on the screen are, are, are 12 of them, uh, but the most important ones are these ones. These are the ones that consume at least 70% of my time uh personally uh and, and you know we are working on this but we truly believe that you know we don't center this on climate justice through democratic engagement and we don't address workforce development it will be possible to electrify our buildings our transportation costs. so so in terms of that i just want to mention that the the climate justice policy that we are trying to pass in the city hasn't passed but my hope is that within the next couple of months we'll have uh, justice 50 program uh, voted in by the this, by city council is you know we want to make sure that that we can share the economic benefits uh, the social benefits environmental benefits with those communities that have been affected disproportionately by climate change, but not only by climate change, but also by by every action that we have taken to fight climate change. And and we don't want to focus on information that we get from the census, because that information doesn't give you the place-based information that you need to understand who suffers more than others. So what we are doing is relying very heavily on local organizations to understand who are those uh, disadvantaged communities that can actually, you know, could benefit from this. And we are thinking about issues like access to health, education, unemployment benefits, financial inclusion, you know, stuff that normally doesn't come up in the census like whether you are undocumented or not. So those things are, are being part of our, our discussion and our hope is that we are going to do things right. Uh, in terms of workforce development, I want to share, and I'll, I'll, I'll probably just share a couple of things with you and then I'll stop. But um, the, as I mentioned, you know, we need to go to these other cities, Elmira, Rochester, Syracuse. And we realize that, you know, by bringing together what ended up being 127 organizations across all of these cities you know we would be serving a population of 2.7 million and you know we could create more than 3,000 jobs in the city of Ithaca so initially we were sharing the cost of transportation childcare, language support coaching uh, and then most of the people would be you know, traveling to it to do the work, but they would become the foundation for a local workforce development in each one of these cities when they start their own their own projects. So this is an ambitious project uh, that all comes from our need to decarbonize our buildings uh, first and foremost. So I just want to mention something about this very quickly, and then I will stop so that we can have a conversation. So one, why buildings? Well, you know, buildings are 40% of the emissions, so it's transportation. But if you think about buildings and if you think about energy efficiency, you know, one, you know, there's a ton of work that we can create, a ton, a ton of jobs. But at the same time, we're helping the grid and, and if we are electrified, so Basically, the emissions from, from, from a building could come down to probably zero. But because of the economic benefits of co-deploying solar and, and EV-ready installations, we actually can reduce 50% of the emissions as a whole in the city. So we started doing this, and we decided we're we going to do this for new programs through energy codes uh, through a massive electrification program with existing buildings. And we're going to also mess with the construction ordinances. You know, the idea is to actually make sure that not even uh, construction waste ends in the landfill. So it's a full circular economy in the city of Ithaca. And this, you know, I want to say at this point that this is all ongoing. Uh, It's not a success story yet. I hope it will be, but for now, it is just a very ambitious program that we're working really hard to implement that will be successful. Uh, The problem with wanting or needing to electrify a whole city is that it's very expensive. Uh, You know, we did this exercise, you know, a single family home could go for you know forty thousand dollars at some point. Uh, so so doing this for the entire city would cost four hundred and fifty million. And you cannot ask the community to pay for it. So you need to find a way of at least upfronting the costs of this transformation and then people can enter into you know favorable repayment plans uh if they want to participate. But we also need to make sure that that it makes sense to make this change because somebody could have bought just a, last year a new water heater or a furnace. And we cannot really in good conscience ask them to change that. And because it's not a mandate, what we can do is develop a plan for them to eventually switch from that. We need to be conscious of the infrastructure and we need to be conscious of workforce, as I mentioned before. Uh, We are relying on a ton of people, but uh, our number one partner is Block Power. Uh, With Block Power, we created this uh, strategy where we have a company representing the government that is dealing with local contractors, with workforce development, with investors, with the federal government, to get funds from the IRA, for example, or from the state of New York. Uh, and, but you know, at the end of the day, right now we have 57 different organizations that are working with us. And the last thing that I want to share with you, and I can go into details of the financing or the technology or the policies, whatever you want, but I just want to share this with you because you know, this was important. When we started working on this, we were like, how do we bring everybody on board? So we realize that it's very similar to when you think about diffusion of technology so we realized that if we were to think about who are the last ones to accept this change to adopt technologies those are the laggards and those happen to be in itaca people who fall on the other side of the political spectrum so we're not even bothering with them and that's true we're not uh we have also the tesla owners we have people who are already doing this so we believe that 15 percent of the people in the city will do this no matter what so we're left with 50% of the population. So it's, it's making it a much more targeted approach. But then in there, you know, we can separate uh, actually those that are low income and those that are median income. And then it becomes a project to really bring on board 30% of the population of the city. We truly believe that if we bring on board that 30%, everything else will, will actually come into place. That will be the critical mass that we need. Because there is something very, very peculiar in New York. Our city, because of the Charter, is not empowered to legislate climate change or anything. <laughs> so we need to be oh, creative in terms of how we do that. But if I get this 30% of the population that is close to the median income, that actually understands the value of a mortgage, the value of leasing a car, and perhaps the value of leasing a heat pump, you know, if we bring them along, then we'll have enough of a critical mass that we can claim that those who are not participating in electrification are disproportionately harming others. And then, because of health issues, I can legislate people and then mandate electrification everywhere. So uh, right now we have a map of the city, and it's a very advanced machine learning tool that allows me to see the energy profile of every building in the city. If you give me an address, I can tell you how good or how bad they have it. And based on this, we're deciding our approach, deciding where we can do this, and if we add a map of circuit capacity. You know, we can tell where we can start electrifying and, and doing everything that we want to do. Um, this was a ton of information, I know, uh, and I'm, I apologize, but I hope it was somehow useful to understand what we're trying to do, and probably we can use the rest of the hour to, to talk about the details, and, and I can go into any kind of detail that you want.
6: Amazing, thank you so much. Yeah, that's very helpful, a lot of information. Um, so I have a couple of questions about some of the details and then I'm sure other folks here do as well if that's all right.
5: Um,
6: so I know I've seen you go into it before and it's really complex, but I was wondering if you could explain a little bit about how you're planning to finance the retrofits of all of the buildings.
7: <laughs> yeah, you probably were in one of those <laughs> conversations about finance. There. Uh, one of the exciting things about what we're doing is, you know, We decided to, like, when when I was designing the program, we we looked at what it would take to do a single house, and we saw that it was about $40,000. But the issue is not the cost. The issue is why it is so expensive. And the truth is that it is expensive because industry is totally fragmented. I literally did this exercise, and I called, I want to do it at home. And I described my home to the contractors, and, you know, I described something much worse than what I had. And and they were like, you know, we need, like, 16 different companies, and it's going to cost me this much. And then for electrification, I had... Only one company that could do heat pumps. So I realized, you know, part of the reason it's expensive is market fragmentation mm-hmm. and, uh, no, and and also the cost of injection in a a company. So we needed to, you know, to create a scale to, so we could actually, you know, reduce that cost. So we decided to go for the entire city, and we we're going to have a pilot with 1,600 buildings that was going to cost about 100 million dollars. So, you know, the, the best way of explaining this, you know, I'm, I'm going to say what we're doing in the very you know, when I, when I use shorthands you know, to, to say this, I, we do three things. We do aggregation, we do dead risking, and we do securitization. So that is an oversimplification, but that is actually what we're doing. So when when we think about going for the whole city, what, what the, the, the way that, that it could be understood is, for a really long time, we were struggling on how to finance solar projects. And we understood at some point that a very large solar project that has an offtaker, you know it could also distribute risk with contracts for maintenance, for operations, for asset management and and we learn how to finance you know a, a large solar development and then we learn how to finance a smaller solar development, how to deal with risk. But the trick was small solar developments. how do you actually do that? But then you know Solar city and Sunrun figure it out. you know yeah you need to aggregate demand and you need to figure out a way of uh, balancing risk with the different projects that you're doing. So I was like, okay, so we can probably do that. If I were to take the entire city, you know, and and then imagine it's no longer small, individual, high-risk projects. It is actually one very large project, which, if you think about all the buildings, is very diversified. And diversification is ideal when you want to reduce risk. So you have uh, an aggregation of a diverse portfolio of buildings that allows you to uh, actually think of this in a programmatic way when you think finance we're not going to do every building at the same time we're going to do it within the next 10 years but from a financial perspective you can think in terms of how are you going to finance the entire project so then you can actually take bundles of buildings and you can get for example 20 buildings and 10 of them are low income and 10 of them are high income and then you basically turn that bundle to a collateralized debt obligation and those who know what that is you know are going to have a heart attack probably because that takes you to the mortgage crisis this is not that but it is a similar concept it is the sense that if you stack this you can balance risk and so we went for private investors and what we did was look i have a city and i have 400,000 metric tons of co2 which for me is a problem but for you it's an investment opportunity and I don't need you to
5: invest you in me, I need you to
7: invest in a company that will take on this. Right. And and then we did the numbers, you know, you can invest in a company like Block Power yeah. that might be valued at twenty million dollars. But if you right. invest, the is gonna give them a half a billion dollar contract and then the company's valuation is gonna go to a billion dollars probably. And that's how you make money. So people start paying attention and realizing, you know, there is an opportunity. Yeah to, to yeah, make this you know, work. Athlete, uh, So right, we right, do aggregation. Right. We do the risking, and the risking also includes finding a way of providing loan guarantees for people and guarantee financial inclusion. And then securitization, that is giving a lender at the end. And that lender in our case is Goldman Sachs, Bank of America, Microsoft, and a company called Alturas. So I hope it helped a little bit, uh, but that's kind of the basis of what we're doing
6: here. um awesome thanks and the my next question is about um social justice a little bit as well and particularly around the building retrofits so we find in Canada a lot of the issues that um that i'm seeing is that the retrofit programs are sort of targeted at the same kind of folks who might Um, own their home like the wealthier sort of single family homeowners and so i'm wondering how like what policies you're using to make sure that folks who are more low income or like living in energy poverty are still being lifted up with the retrofit program well
7: actually you know we have our justice 50 program it hasn't passed as a city-wide uh, resolution but it has already been accepted as part of the take green new deal so anything that we do for decarbonization has to comply with Justice50, which means we need to quantifiably demonstrate that 50% of the investment that we're getting are going to low-income uh, buildings. So out of the $100 million that we are deploying right now, $50 million need to go to these, these homes. And, you know, we are, you know, selectively identifying those buildings that need the most help. And we're actually helping to create these bundles where we have uh, a building that is low-risk because it's a high-income high, uh, high income, uh, family, for example, and then have this building where you have low-income families, and then you balance risk between the two of them, and then you start deploying them. And the 50 also tells you that you can never be working, and this is the rule that we have, where you cannot work on electrification on a building that is not low-income if you are not already working on a building that is low-income. So, the local contractors uh, also have a requirement to hire local and to hire for minority groups. So, uh, and, and with that, um, we're going beyond minority groups, actually. We're, we're focusing on formerly incarcerated tribal nations, uh, undocumented immigrants, and black, brown, Southeast Asian, and, uh, and the Muslim community that are truly minorities in our neighborhood. And, and we're trying to bring them
6: to be part of this. Thank you and someone else was asking how the city went about doing an analysis of the housing stock and fuel sources um, and was academia involved in that or how can other folks do it we had a ton of information uh, you know we, we had
7: information in terms of you know from the county assessor and also from from the city they need to you know file for a permit every time they need to do you know any major renovation so we know who has a gas furnace who has a who, who claim with yeah, what kind fuel of fuel. so we had all yeah. that information. Uh, we partnered with Cornell yeah, University to right, develop yeah. the tool that would allow us to, you know, determine the the three D energy profile for every building. Yeah. And what they did yeah. is they went to Google, uh, Google Earth actually, and they found shadow yeah. and they found orientation and they combined oh, with the actual so data that we had yeah. oh, and, and so they basically, calculated sort of like you know, calculated, quick, you know the, the team, energy profile for
6: like every building. Awesome. Thanks. Uh, If other folks have questions too, you can raise your hand. And I was also going to ask about um, transportation. So what policies are you using to encourage folks to sort of get out of their cars? I know you mentioned that uh, they feel like they have a right to a loud uh, pickup truck, which I can relate to because I live in Alberta and I think for sure everyone has very loud race pickup trucks here um, but so I was wondering what what sort of policies you're using to encourage maybe going to bicycles or to buses
7: uh, uh, sure just very quickly I saw like what is the definition of low income we're talking about one standard deviation from the median
6: income uh,
7: so yeah, for transportation that is that is complicated you know I, I do have influence in terms of the municipal fleet Uh, But, you know, everything else, and if we follow the idea that this has to be a market-based approach before we follow with the rest of the potential instruments we can deploy, you know, we we need to talk to, for example, financial institutions locally to see if we can come up with programs that will allow people to get uh, electric vehicles in an affordable way. Uh, We're talking to insurance companies to see if we can do that. And, you know, now with the IRA, we, we can actually that you know now the federal government can give you five thousand dollars for a second-hand electric vehicle. So we were working, and, and this is an example of, of the program that we're trying to develop. We were talking to a financial institution about them buying, uh, you know, let's say twenty second-hand uh, Nissan Leaf. In uh, 2014, Nissan Leaf, you know, the actual cost should be around 18000 dollars, even though they go for thirty. But, you know, if we buy them in bulk, you know, we can probably reach that that price. And then uh, because of the the level of depreciation that you have in the chassis compared to the battery, you could actually separate them. And, and the program that we are working on right now is to sell the chassis to somebody who's low income for $800 and then lease the battery for a renewable five-year time lease, that is a 10-year lease, and... Uh, at least in the battery for probably, you know, eighty dollars. So suddenly you have somebody of low income that with a thousand dollars could get a second hand electric vehicle okay, and they well, just pay a monthly
0: payment. Really uh,
7: uh, the problem was we'll insurance and underwriting. So we needed to go to primary. the to the state and the state uh, created a loan loss reserve that will that makes it no longer necessary to look at the great history of the person. So that allowed us to, to really do you know, uh, financial inclusion. So, so that's an example. Uh, but other policies that we're, doing, we're deploying charging stations and we're doing it strategically, we're doing it outside multifamily uh, buildings, which is where most of the low-income people live. We're not doing it in the fancy neighborhoods. You know, they can pay for their own charging stations. We are selectively identifying where to put charging stations in some neighborhoods, in some parking parking lots, every municipal building. Uh, so a combination of you know market incentives, what the federal government is doing. Uh, we are not implementing policies like mandates, like uh, you know you cannot bring your car to downtown and stuff like that. But we are working with transit authority and with the ride share companies.
2: Uh, you know the
7: ride share companies will need to be 100% electric by 2030, for example. Uh, so so we are working with all of them trying to come up with a comprehensive proposal. But at the end of the day, this is going to depend on, on whether people want to do that. So there is no mandate uh, coming down the line for
6: transportation. Sounds good. Thank you. Uh, Deborah, do you want to ask a question?
0: Yeah, thank you. Um, uh, one of my backgrounds is an electrical engineer. I also work with wire, women, and renewable energy. And I'm wondering whether your inclusion policies also include women and what are those policies? Thank you.
7: Yeah, they actually do. Uh, in terms of, we had an RFP, so, so we had a, an RFP to select the program manager, which is Block Power, and then we had RFPs to select the contractors. And uh, women-owned were favored, uh, and, and uh, you know, proportion of, of uh, female uh, workers also, uh, you know, give them more points in the assignation of these contracts. So in that sense, we're doing that. And the, the workforce development, we. The workforce development organizations okay. fought
2: yeah. me
7: yeah, uh, in, really policy day. specifically a of mandating a number of female participants in, in the workforce development program. They yeah. they it's said that problem, as of today, but, that would yeah, be well, detrimental. I'm not entirely sure that's the case but that's you know, what it's happened. It's so happened. so we, we do have here, requirements in terms of climate justice, but we do not have it in terms of gender equality. So that might be yeah,
6: problem there, yeah,
0: easy, yeah. Right. yeah, that's a big problem,
6: yeah. That is so great. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Um, and then another question from the chat is um, Did Ithaca pass a climate emergency resolution? And if so, did it help to get council on board for this program?
7: No, we didn't pass one, and, uh, and, uh, and they actually rejected the idea. I, th- I couldn't even I bring it to know. the floor, so it was never voted on. And I had the, the so, resolution. Okay. the However, I, I have never had, a, that's the only one that, that's never really made it to a vote. I mean, our Justice 50 strategy is going to eventually make it. But so far, everything that we have presented has had unanimous support from City Council. And that has to do with a lot of communication and, and lobbying that we do. You know, we, we need to work with them and help them understand. I mean, we do realize that a lot of what they need is to, one, understand how it helps the program, two, how it impacts the community, how it impacts the staff budget. Uh, And, and, you know, how long the program is going to last, what other externalities exist. So we know what we need to talk to them about, what we need to analyze. And we ourselves have killed a number of initiatives because we realize, you know, this is affecting, you know, disproportionately this this part of the city. But, uh, yeah, no, there is no climate emergency.
6: Okay, helpful. And maybe this will be my last question, but it's a bit of a chunky one. Um, so you talked a little bit about uh, circular economy initiatives and how everything is, is really circular. And you spoke a little bit about local economy so far, but I was wondering if you could dig in a little bit more to some of the circular economy policies that you're including.
7: Yeah, I think for for example, organic waste, uh, you know, as I mentioned, uh, you know, right now we... The collection site there are different collection sites for food scraps and, and the wastewater treatment plant also separates the sludge so our, right now everything is being combined there and what we are trying to do is to you know bring them into you know pyrolysis system so we can sequester uh, emissions and use the biochar to, to help the soil uh, so right now for organic that's we are doing we're about to begin a pilot to do a corpse site pickup of organic waste uh, for food scraps, really. Um, the, and that distinction is important, I'll tell you in a second. But uh, so, so right now, the hope is that we'll be able to, as we collect uh, recycling every two weeks and trash every week, we may move from trash every week for, to trash every other week. And uh, every other week we we'll would pick up uh, you know, food scraps. Uh, and that is also with the idea of, of feeding the, the biodigesters and, and paralysis systems so we can actually Sequester carbon. Um, there is a group that is, is working with me that they're very focused on the circular economy of bio nutrients. So that is Via basically. Uh, and they believe that, uh, I mean, actually, there are pilot programs where we have. Uh, tomatoes and a number of things that are growing, you know, by recycling these components, and it's, it's through pyrolysis, so it's not a direct application. Except well, not anything that is liquid goes liquid into the fields, but but everything else actually goes through pyrolysis, and and they are demonstrating actually that you know it has real benefits. So that's one of the things that I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to play because it will never pass. You know, I would never get city council to approve circular economy by unit have something like that uh, and then in terms of uh you know material resource management or you know solid waste uh the, the city of Ithaca, I don't know if any of you have ever visited the city of Ithaca, but you know one of the, the things that we have is the the, the reuse center and it is a success story uh people in Ithaca, I I you know, obviously everywhere people throw away stuff, but you know we do the recycling, and it's done at the county level. But uh, the, in this center, people take everything that you can think of, and it's amazing. And we have hired close to 300 people that uh, learn how to fix everything, and they put it back in the market. So the idea is to, you know, recirculate local local dollars, uh, and and it is amazing. It is it is one of the largest reused and recycled centers in. Uh, in upstate New York. Uh, So what we are doing to to complement that is, uh, for example, policies like extended responsibility for uh, local producers of of waste. So mostly we are talking to the the grocery stores and, uh, you know, uh, for example, we are also talking to restaurants uh, and, and, you know, we're trying to get a policy approved well you know people will be allowed to bring their own containers uh you know for for leftovers and also we are trying to find a way of pressuring restaurants into reducing portions so we don't have that much food waste because one of the problems that we had with with the pandemic was even though we have a new scraps food scraps law in new york that that you know makes it necessary to collect food scraps from restaurants and they take them to a transfer center. They, with the pandemic everybody took it home. So now all the food scraps were distributed all over the place. So we are trying to figure out how to address that because people are still, you know, uh, taking stuff home. So, so those are mostly, you know, the, the programs that we have for addressing, you know, circular economy.
6: Awesome. And is there any consideration of building deconstruction materials for reuse?
7: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, there is a deconstruction ordinance uh, that should be presented to Council. I mean, honestly, we wanted it, uh, you know, this summer, but it's likely it's going to happen next year, probably February. And uh, this deconstruction ordinance is based on what the guys in Portland did, uh, you know, with their own deconstruction ordinance. And uh, there is a group, uh, that is a combination of community based organizations and, and Cornell faculty. That are actually working on that, and we had a, a wonderful experiment about three months ago, where the community came together to deconstruct a building in downtown. And it was like 150 people carrying every bit of the building to demonstrate that it can be done. Uh, the developers are objecting to, to deconstruction. You know, obviously, it's very expensive for them, and it delays the process. And they argue that it affects financing. You know, financing, you can lock it for a certain amount of time. And introducing this gets you out of that that range. So we're figuring that figuring that out, you know, trying to work with the developers at the same time and that's why we are postponing trying to present this. But I th- I think we will have
6: the support that we need for the deconstruction ordinance. Awesome. Thanks. Um, Well, I really appreciate you coming and taking the time to chat with everyone today. And I'm sure that everyone got lots of really good ideas for policy initiatives and things. Um, Is there anywhere that folks can find uh, some written examples of the financing that you've done um, and some of the other policies and things that you've talked about? Yeah, we're going to launch
7: a website. I mean, we are... Much behind with that. I mean, I want to have my website out in like May, but you know, it's gonna happen in February now again. But uh, yeah, the website is gonna have a ton of information and white papers, and I'm gonna. Lot busy. I, I am writing a book that is going to be mostly focused on, on how we put together the financing for this project. So that should be out probably next year. And, and you know, probably a few white papers will be written about that too. So, uh, I mean, as, as, as I get information, I'll be very happy to share. And, and I'll send you an email, Alex, with, you know, you know, some things that probably people can find interesting and get more information from
6: amazing thank you so i'll share that around with everybody afterwards so yeah thank you so much for coming i really really appreciate it lots of people were so excited to hear you talk and i've been hearing seeing already great comments in the chat so thank you so much for coming
7: well thank you very much and you know i appreciate very much this this opportunity i hope we can do it again at some point
6: yes definitely definitely all right take care all right
1: thank Thank you. you recording stopped